This week on The Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, it is part two of our coverage of the Battle of Chickamauga. Frontier of hope and possibility. Being excellent to each other and party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and with me this evening are Rail Splitter Mary. What up, Rail Split Nash? And Rail Splitter Nick. What's up? To all our fans relaxing on a nice plane ride to Arizona, listening to our show, thank you. What a very random. Did you state. want to? Did, did you want to mention your your upcoming trip to Arizona, Nick? Is that your subtle way of saying like, hey, let me talk about that? No, it really wasn't. Um, but hi to Kira, who I'm assuming sitting next to me listening to this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she probably won't listen. She hates us, guys. I'm just joking. <laughs> no, she's. I'm gonna uh, make her listen little, now. Uh... I'm gonna be like, "Hey, yeah, we we talked about you." No, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be going to Arizona. So awesome. Um, you yeah. wanna you wanna share just a little bit about why? I think it's kind of a cool accomplishment of sorts. Yeah, we made uh, me and some former students um, a few years ago, about over a year now, made a documentary. We're lucky enough to get it into a film festival. My friend Ingrid will be screening at the Jerome Indie Film Festival. So this Sunday. Congrats. Thank you. That's so, yeah. so not only is he a podcaster, not only is he an educator, he's also a burgeoning filmmaker. So you can check that out at, if you're anywhere near Jerome. Is Jerome like uh, suburban Phoenix? Is it Sedona? Is it It's more desert? Sedona than Phoenix. It's an old mining town, actually, up in the, like kind of the desert mountains. Um, it's a really cool town. So it's probably about... 30 minutes from Sedona, uh, probably about 40 minutes from Sedona, maybe like two hours north of Phoenix area, two and a half. So it's a cool town. So if you're there, yeah, you should take a nice weekend trip. We screen Sunday, four o'clock, Jerome uh, Fire Department. I'll be there. This four and a half star podcaster. I'll be there. (laughs) All right. I expect it. Mary loves road trips. Yep. Yeah. Just getting my car. Uh, so we, we do like to start off our shows with uh, ramblings from Nick and also uh, anytime Lincoln pops up in the news. And uh, in the little rail splitter group chat, we got a message on Friday from rail splitter Mary that said, ooh, Lincoln gossip. Yep. Uh, and it turns out that, yes, indeed, there is a little bit of Lincoln gossip slash some shakeup in the Abraham Lincoln universe at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum this week. Uh, Alan Lowe was the head of the Lincoln Library and that position is now open. Uh, And the news outlets are saying fired, so it's not as if he was asked to resign or chose to resign. He was fired. Uh, And it uh, would appear to be, um, and I think we may have reported on this a few months ago, that um, the control of or control or oversight of the Lincoln Library is actually the state of Illinois, which is a little bit different than some other presidential libraries. Some of them are branches of the National Archives or independent entities. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of information as to why or what happened, but considering the shakeup with the curator, I believe it was curator position with Dr. Cornelius and the whole top hat thing, there seems to be some drama over there, if nothing else. I mean, I don't want to speculate on the who's, why's, where's, and what's, other than to say uh, it can't be running real smoothly, I guess, if, if um, some high-profile folks are, are leaving in the fashion that they're leaving in. I don't think you'll see a whole lot of – hopefully you won't see a whole lot of um, drawbacks or stepbacks in, in the service at the, at the library. You know, it is a wonderful place. Uh, we did have some guests who worked there a couple of shows ago. Um, which you know was really cool about the Lincoln Papers. So, yeah, rail splitters. What are your thoughts on the head of the Lincoln Library getting fired? I, I mean, kind of interesting. 
if you look at that guy's resume, he had quite the resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely had the experience there. Um, doesn't mean that he was or was not doing a good or bad job. But um, as far as the resume goes, you can't get a much more accomplished guy coming in doing that job. So I think like we've talked about, I mean, this has been a recurring news issue, kind of the drama over there. Um, you know, why is the drama? Is it because the higher-ups – um, did they actually do something wrong? Are they the fall guys? Um, him and Cornelius? I don't know. It's definitely, I'm sure, it'd be kind of interesting to be a fly on the wall um, within the library museum for the employees there and see what the gossip is. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Hopefully this is the last of the shakeups. And like you said, boys, uh, hopefully it does not impact uh, as far as the museum and the stuff they're doing over there, because they're doing a lot of good things, mm-hmm. um, despite you know the hat controversy and some of the the money. I think at the end of the day, you know, you get that much money um, involved, and especially when you're coming up short on paying stuff back, usually somebody's got to be the fall guy in this case, um, whether it's right or wrong. I well, I don't know if they're the fall guys, but. Usually somebody is going to be in trouble for something. Yeah, that that's very true. I mean, when I when this news came across, I was shocked, but then I wasn't given what's happened there in the past year or two. And they do mention the hat in this one article that I read about it. Um, and the like it says in this one article that Lowe had been at odds with the Lincoln Presidential Library Foundation, which borrowed millions of dollars to buy a collection of Lincoln artifacts, which we did. Um, we had a discussion about that uh, quite a few episodes back um, about that foundation. Um, so it it's one of those things that, um, and I've, you know, I've worked in a couple museums that have been kind of under the control of the government and stuff like this, um, sadly, it happens quite a bit. Like, there can be some kind of shakedown. And then kind of the higher-ups are the ones that end up going. Um, they kind of are the, I guess, kind of the scapegoats sometimes in a way. I'm not saying that this is the case here at all. Like, I'm not speculating that. But that's just, in some of the places I've worked, that's what, what has happened. Um, and just from other stories that I've read. But, but yeah, his resume was amazing. And... Uh, so in a way, that's why it's surprising, but it just makes me wonder, you know, what went on there. Yeah, hopefully with a resume like that, if he was a fall guy, you know, he'll be, I'm sure it will be known in the community mm-hmm. and with a resume like that. And I'm not sure what his future plans are. Maybe he's fine, um, you know, close to retirement age, but um, I'm sure he'll have opportunities out there. Yep. Yeah, and I, you know, it's it's not fair to anybody to speculate, but I I, I just think that um, the fact that it's not a resignation might mean there was something um, that, that just didn't didn't sit well with the uh, with the doesn't have the feel of like a political kind of appointment like many many state offices are where you know a new governor comes in appoints people who were friendly to him or maybe worked on his campaign or whatever, or of, or of his party or, you know, the Victor go to spoils kind of thing. This doesn't feel like that in that kind of position. I don't think would ever really align with that kind of thing. So I don't think that's what happened. Um, and I don't want to speculate on what did happen, but yeah, I think um, it could be something as simple as that the way the library was going just wasn't up to mm-hmm. the standards of the Pritzker administration. So of course, you know, you let the, you, you know, you gotta let the top person off. That's just kind of how things work. Or something may have happened. Who knows? Uh, but there is a shakeup there, so um, hopefully there won't be any difference. Maybe an improvement in the service that we get from the Lincoln Library because it is a wonderful place, mm-hmm. often overlooked and overshadowed by the museum. I think from a tourist standpoint, but from a history and a historian standpoint, of course, the library is a treasure um, and a huge resource for Lincoln scholarship. What keeps so the museum our, running? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so a lot of, uh, that's, that's our Lincoln news story for the week. And we're going to trans, trans, uh, transition over into the topic of the week, which is continuing our coverage. Coverage sounds weird. It's not really a news story (laughs) happened about, you know, happened a little, happened a minute ago. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, we're covering the, the, the live breaking action of the Chickamauga, the battle of Chickamauga. Uh, 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 
about the major players. Um, so if you weren't able to catch that episode, you may just want to kind of listen to to the parts where we talked about kind of who um, who the cast of characters is um, coming at us here in, I guess, what would it be, northeastern Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, how they got there, uh, what it meant. For, you know, we did talk a little bit about kind of what it meant um, for the war, why do, why do we look at this as a major battle? Just, you know, obviously the huge casualties and big, um, number of people involved, but also kind of where, where, uh, it fits in the legacy of the civil war, um, as one of the better known battles from the West and the South Southern part of the war as well. Um, so that was kind of what we talked about in part one. So part two of this episode, we're going to really talk about the battle itself, the combat, the movements, the decisions, um, why it was won, why it was lost, um, what may have, you know, maybe could have been done differently. Um, and then we'll kind of wrap it up with just a kind of maybe a rehashing of why this battle is important and why we decided to pick an episode for it because um, it doesn't have any more of a connection to Lincoln than maybe any other battle may have had, but it's still, of course, important in the grand picture of Lincoln. Any battle in the Civil War is important in an understanding Abraham Lincoln. So I'm going to turn over to Mary to kind of kick us off here with the the battle itself. Okay, so um, in the prior episode, like we did discuss the day one of the battle, which was September 18th, 1863, which was just some squirmishing. Um, well, I shouldn't say just some squirmishing, but it was what alerted Rosecrans. <laughs> people died. It's not just squirmishing. I know. Exactly. People died. Skirmishing. Squirmishing. Squirmishing. Yes. Yeah. Not ju- no, it was. Um, it's important to remember that seven, it, September 18th is the first day of the battle um, because this also alerts Rosecrans to where the Confederate troops are. And this allows him to extend his line. Um, a little bit further for um, September 19th, 1863, which is really, um, this is like what we would think of as an actual battle um, happening. And um, so three quarters of Bragg's Army of Tennessee is now across Chickamauga Creek. They Most of them would have crossed during the night. Um, so there's men fighting that have been up all night. And it's the same with, with the Army of the Cumberland too. Like, Thomas, Thomas and his men who were ordered to um, extend the Union line, they had to make a, a night march. So they're going to be tired as well while they're, while they're fighting. So the fighting begins shortly after dawn at a place called Jay's Mills when pickets from Union Colonel Daniel McCook's brigade encounter Confederate soldiers. And McCook draws back, reports to Thomas. General Thomas tells him to attack. Um, and so the battle's opening where Bragg does not want it to. Like the Union line is extended further than what Bragg is expecting it. So he's been caught off guard by that. And that's going to be kind of a theme for him in this battle and in this campaign. Um, So throughout the day, Bragg does manage to gain ground, but the Union are still strongly holding their lines. And much of the attack is focused on the Union left, since that is near the main road to Chattanooga. And that is Bragg's objective, is to get that city back, because that is... Like, that is a hub for the Confederacy, and that's why the Union wants it, because of all those railways, like we talked in the first episode. Um, so Bragg's plan is to get between the Federals and Chattanooga, and these Confederate attacks are very aggressive. And the one thing I found with studying Chickamauga and doing this research is that it is confusing. It is a hard battle to wrap my mind around, Um even just looking at the maps and like, I really have to think about, okay, their troops are here and doing this. And uh, one of my followers on Twitter um, put it very well that it's actually like a series of mini battles that are happening. Mm, I like that. All over the place, which when I started thinking of it that way, it became a lot easier for me to, to look at like, you know, okay, so-and-so is over here doing this. And, um, but as I said, these attacks are very aggressive, um, and the fighting's very chaotic, which is because of the terrain. The terrain's very different from Gettysburg. Like, these guys are fighting in forests and swamps and then on open plains, and there's, like, hilly areas. So um, views are going to be very obstructed as well. Lines of sight from the commanders, um, which is really going to play a role um, on day three of the battle, um, that really comes into play. Um, quite a bit. Um, so, and I found compared to Gettysburg day two, 
it's not very as clear cut. Like Chickamauga Day Two is very uh, like all over the place and just um, it, it, it's it's cha- it's a chaotic battle to study. It's like if you don't do well with battles to begin with, then um, it's going to be a hard one to wrap your mind around. Yes, I agree with that very much. And so the the one thing that happens on this first day is um, something that doesn't happen very often in battles. It is an evening attack. And Bragg decides he's going to do one final push in the evening. So it's around 6 o'clock that he orders General Claiborne's division, who's been held in reserve all day, so they haven't been fighting at all. They're fresh troops. Um, They're ordered to attack in an area called Winfrey Field that has been relatively quiet for a few hours. They're not ready to attack until around 7 o'clock, which this time of year, it's getting dark, and they're in the forest. And it ends up being this rare night engagement. And because of the terrain, as well as it getting dark, it's very chaotic. There's a lot of troops that end up getting killed by friendly fire on both sides. And... um, Powell in his, um, um, David Powell's my main source for researching this battle. Um, He's written a whole trilogy about it. He states that of this night engagement, aside from adding to the casualty list, the fight proved indecisive. Um, I think Claiborne managed to capture a few pieces of artillery and that was it. And he did draw, like the Union troops left the field, but they were going to end up doing that anyway. Um. So this night attack is what ends the first day's fighting of, or what ends this day's fighting of the Battle of Chickamauga. No, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. Brutal fighting. Nobody really gains the upper hand. Both sides kind of reinforce each other. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they both have reinforcements. So just kind of more people piling on to this chaos that's already ensuing with these different battles taking place throughout the day. Um, I think you did a nice job really kind of explaining that. Thank you. And then just kind of the, yeah, the brutality this type of fighting leads to. Yeah, it was, that was the one thing I read. I read some soldiers accounts of it, like just, you know, the aftermath and just how brutal the, the fighting was. And it was really was kind of one, one source I read said it, it was the, like almost the beginnings of like a new type of warfare because they're, they're not spread out in straight lines because of the terrain and they're they're doing more crouching down. They're doing more digging in trenches at this battle too. Um, and the other thing that happens is both Bragg and Rosecrans they start pulling from random random corps and divisions, and their um, palaces. This really gets into the causing the the integrity of the the corps, the division to to suffer. So you have like you know, for example, General Polk is on one end of the battlefield. And he's got, you know, another division on the other side of the battlefield, and they're they're fighting apart from him. So odds are they might not know who they're supposed to be taking orders from. They might not know who, who like, you know, where Polk is and all that. So there's that kind of chaos being mixed in with this as well, which goes back to the generals who are commanding at this battle as well. Like, it's very, um, it's very different from Gettysburg, I find. Um in the commanding of like what's going on and how things are going with it. So then on the evening of September 19th, they both sides hold war councils. um, And Powell's got a really good quote. He said, fighting had raged unceasingly for more than 12 hours. And by the time the sun set, nearly every brigade in the union army had seen action. There's only five fresh brigades that are remaining available for the next day. Um, which you compare that to Gettysburg, I think they had a whole core. So he's put everything in that he's got. And I mean, Bragg, Bragg's not in the same situation, but his army is still very tired. Um, so Rosecrans sends a telegram to Halleck in Washington, and he says, we have just concluded a terrific day's fighting and have another in prospect for tomorrow. The enemy attempted to turn our left, but his design was anticipated and a sufficient force placed there to render his attempt abortive. So Rosecrans is being very, and rightly so, he's being positive. He's being, you know, kind of like, hey, we're getting this done down here for you. Um, But he's downplaying the damage that his army has suffered. Um, He describes the number of dead, and I don't know how he, like, why you would do this as being inconsiderable, like, you know, 
inconsiderable kind of like you don't need to worry about how many how many have died um, but he admits to the number of wounded as being very heavy he admits to Bragg as having superior numbers but he concludes his telegram by stating the army is in excellent condition and spirits and by the blessing of providence the defeat of the enemy will be total tomorrow so he's going into to day three very positively and interestingly enough Charles Dana the assistant secretary of war who also happens to be present at this battle has similar thoughts to that of Rosecrans. Um, and as you will remember from our first episode, Dana is there to quote unquote, gather information. He's a spy. And all of Rosecrans staff knows that he's a spy. And I think even Rosecrans knows he's a spy and he's there for Stanton to spy and see what's going on. Um, yeah. Like a spy. Like yep. a friendly spy, kind of, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of like a shady, kind of following you around and watching your every move and like, hey, what are you doing right now? Like, um, So Powell describes the mood at Union Army headquarters as being positive and upbeat, and despite thinking themselves badly outnumbered, everyone believed they'd taken Bragg's best punch and stopped the rebels in their tracks. And I sometimes wonder if this goes back to Bragg's reputation as well that they don't think they're dealing with somebody who's going to be able to, to win this battle against them, perhaps. Yeah, I think very much so. Cause he already had a reputation by that point um, on both sides, um, both union and Confederate. And um, that the union army is in a jumble and that's because, um, and Powell says that's because Rosecrans has cannibalized stuff throughout the day and he's pushed, different you know brigades and divisions all over the place so they're not with their commander anymore and i'm sure that made things very chaotic as well like thomas right now is the primary field commander controlling five of the army's 10 available infantry divisions so he's got a lot of men under him right now and it's after 10 o'clock that rosecrans finally holds this council of war and the most detailed account of it is written by none other than Assistant Secretary of War, Charles Dana. And all the Corps commanders are present, including James Garfield, um, as well as Brigadier General James St. Clair Morton, who is the Army of the Cumberland's chief engineer. And it's decided the Union's going to remain in their defensive position. And Rosecrans is even of the opinion that Bragg may end up retreating. Well, he's wrong. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> you spoiled it, Nick. <laughs> and then, yeah, I've, yeah, you go on. And then over on the Confederate side of things, um, Bragg sends a report to Richmond. Knight found us masters of the ground after a series of very obstinate contests with largely superior numbers. So a very, I've read some of Braxton Bragg's letters. This is very much a Bragg telegram. Like some of the some of the letters he writes after, like he's very blunt and to the point. Um, at times, he's also very little bit of um, flair for the dramatics in there. So what happens here is kind of like how not to hold a war council. What he does um, ends up in a kind of communication breakdown. So Bragg is said to have hated war councils because many of his subordinate officers went on record in spring of 1863 as having no confidence in their commander which meant a formal conference might deteriorate into another such brag bashing session. And I put that quote in there just because it was Sid Bragg bashing and that's from Powell. Yeah. I mean, when you're shitty at something, well, you don't really want to sit and expose your shittiness. It's <laughs> a good way to put it too. And Bragg also does not like many of his subordinates, including Polk. And eventually he's not going to like Longstreet very much either. Um, so Bragg, Bragg doesn't like anybody. No, I I think if he had a dog, he might like his dog. But I don't know if he had a dog. He likes his wife, but she's his biggest cheerleader. And he likes Jefferson Davis, but Davis is his second biggest cheerleader at this point. The reason Bragg's in charge is because Davis has allowed him to stay in charge. And, like, even after this meeting in, like, you know, spring of 1863, he's still there. Um, I'm thinking, it, and that's also because Davis didn't like 
General Joseph Johnston. That's why he's not in charge. Um, so Bragg's going to meet individually. So it's not a big war council like what Rosecrans has had or like what Meade had at Gettysburg. It's meeting with them individually. Um, and this is mainly just meeting with Leonidas Polk and James Longstreet. And not even that is at the same time. And that's to tell them both that um, he's going to change the army organization into wings. So Polk is going to command the right wing and Longstreet is going to command the left wing. And he's doing that just because of how chaotic things are to make things, he thinks in, in his mind, it's going to make things run smoothly. And really, um, like just the reading I did about it, like on paper, it looks great. But when you transfer it to a battlefield, I in this type of battle, I don't know how great it would have been. Um, and just with the communications they're having to begin with, it might not have been a great idea in hindsight. Um, so he's going to rely on Polk and Longstreet to relay this to the core that are now under them. And Longstreet actually doesn't arrive on the battlefield until 11 o'clock. And it takes him a while to find Bragg because Bragg doesn't send anybody to meet him. So Longstreet's got to wander through the woods <laughs> looking for Braxton Bragg. <laughs> and... So Bragg's plan is to attack the Union Army from right to left in a like a ripple effect. And Polk was to begin this attack at dawn and Longstreet is to come in after that. And this is where the communication breakdown occurs. So one of the generals that is under Polk is D.H. Hill, who, oddly enough, the night we're recording this episode, September 24th, is the anniversary of D.H. Hill's death. That just came across my Twitter feed a little while ago. So Hill never receives his orders to attack at dawn because no one can find him. And that's because Hill is off on his own little adventure looking for Bragg to talk to him about how the next day is going to unfold and he doesn't actually find him. Um, so that's we, we, where we were left on the night um, and early morning hours of September 20th. Um, do you guys have anything to add in at all? I feel like I'm like stealing... <laughs> Like, no, like you're, you're talking my head off. Yeah, actually, yeah, you did most of the research. I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a little. I'm like a listener. I'm part okay. of Real Splitter Nation okay. this evening. Um, no, I'm, I, I, I like it because I can picture a little bit better. Um, I really liked the comparison to many little battles, kind of in a, in a con- concentrated place. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, that, that having been there, especially because I, I kind of felt. I don't know if I felt bad or felt weird when I was there. I'm like, I'm having a really hard time picturing this thing. Uh, but as you're kind of talking about it now, it's kind of starting to, to make sense. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those battles that I find, like, I finally had parts of it starting to click with me the more research I did and looked at looked at stuff. Um, and Powell is um, a really, he's really good at summarizing things and talking about how things went in a way that is uh, very accessible. Like I have a tough time wrapping my mind around battles. So of course my favorite battle to study is the one that is the toughest. I, in my opinion is the hardest one to understand. Um, So we go to the morning of September 20th and Polk is awakened at five o'clock to find out that Hill is not getting ready for battle as he's supposed to be supposed to attack at dawn because he'll still he's never gotten those orders so that's when this messenger arrives from braxton bragg to talk to polk basically asking him what the hell has happened why why is the attack not happening um bragg writes that with increasing anxiety and disappointment i waited until after sunrise without hearing a gun and at length dispatched a staff officer to lieutenant general polk to ascertain the cause of the delay so Braxton, Braxton Bragg's not happy, and Polk's response is basically he is unable to account for why Hill never received his orders, and Bragg's plan at this point is completely derailed for the dawn attack. So eventually Hill is, a found, is found eating breakfast with um, Breckenridge and Claiborne. Three of them, none of them have any idea what's going on at all. So, and Hill makes up these excuses as to why the attack hasn't happened and, like, what he's doing waiting around. Um, so, eventually, when it does happen, it resumes around 9.30 in the morning. So, long after dawn, 
has happened. And again, they're coordinated to tax on the union left because that's where, um, you know, that's the clo- that's they're trying to get to Chattanooga. That's their their whole objective. Um, and this is where probably the most famous part of the battle happens. Happens around ten thirty. Um, I've called it in my notes Rosecrans's blunder, but um, you'll often find it um, in many different books about Chickamauga. It's called the breakthrough. So just like at Gettysburg, we have an issue with a gap. <laughs> Only this time, mm-hmm. it's an actual gap. Mm-hmm. So because of the terrain, um, Rosecrans's view is actually obstructed. And he thinks there's a gap that exists um, in one area. So he orders Thomas J. Wood to move his division and fill in this perceived gap. So Wood's orders are to close up upon Reynolds, Reynolds as fast as possible and support him. Close up means to make a sidestep and close any gap and support means to form a line behind. Wood knows that if he does this, it's going to cause a gap. But he's been reprimanded twice before. And in this case, third time is not a charm. So he follows orders, even though he knows what's going to happen. And once he does this, he has created a gap in the Union line. And if you look, if you look at the battle maps of it, the Confederates can just rush right in there. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Longstreet at this point is organizing his troops to attack. And he realizes this. So he sends Hood forward to attack and this is when the union right just completely collapses and they collapse to the point where they start running back and they run past rosecrans's headquarters so rosecrans is just sitting there and a sea of blue is coming at him and the next thing it's a sea of gray and they just start retreating back into into chattanooga um it's at this time on the union right that there's um a man named General William Lytle is fighting there. He's a politician from Ohio, and he's leading his troops. And he, they are said to be the last to retreat from the battlefield because he's, hold, he's trying to hold that ground and not leave. And he ends up getting killed. Um, I've actually been to the spot where he was killed. And it's a um, pretty cool spot to visit on and powerful, very emotional place to visit at, ba- at the Chickamauga battlefield. Um, so when he's mortally wounded, the Union right just completely collapses. Um, and he is the highest ranking officer killed at Chickamauga. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to mention him is um, just like John Reynolds is the highest ranking officer killed at Gettysburg. We have uh, the highest ranking officer killed at Chickamauga. So that's kind of another parallel with that battle, too. Um, so that's. Yeah. When, oh, sorry, sorry, Nick, go ahead. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to say anything important, but uh, no, I mean, to give you an idea, basically they like pretty much knocked out a third of the army mm-hmm. um, with that gap opening up there. And Longstreet just had to be talk about, you know, right time, right place. Yep. So that whole gap and then like a lot of stuff in the Civil War, just kind of an unfortunate decision benefited one side. So, yeah, that knocks out a third of the army. So they were pretty yep. evenly matched going in. So this is a huge advantage to the South. Um, so they're pretty apt at this point, the Union. Yeah, it it's I can't even imagine what that must have been like. But lucky for the Union, they've got General Thomas. Yeah, and my note said the Union was really effed, and Thomas was badass. <laughs> that's that's so. pretty much it. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, Thomas, he ends up just kind of... He sees what's happening, and he knows Rosecrans has gone back to Chattanooga, and he just takes command. He consolidates the scattered Union troops. And you still had some troops that were on the right that was collapsed. They come over to him, which that's really, I was like, whoa, this is, that's something. Um, So he's got these troops in a line along Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge. It's a very defensive position. And he is going to hold that line against 25 separate attacks that Longstreet is going to launch at him. That is just... Crazy. Like, like it's... 
it's really like 25 separate attacks. And I think Thomas actually made a comment at some point about it, like saying like, what, why does he keep doing like, this is crazy. Just keep throwing these men at me. And he's gonna, he's gonna hold this. And this is what saves the, the union from complete routing from losing Chattanooga. Because he's holding them there, um, he's able to hold them back. The union is a the rest of the union army is able to retreat back into Chattanooga, um, into defensive positions around there that the Confederates had actually built themselves. And he holds them back long enough to do this. But eventually, he and his troops have to abandon this position. They've got to fall back to around nightfall. He leaves three regiments there: the 22nd Michigan, the 89th Ohio, and the 21st Ohio. And they end up running out of ammunition and they got to use their bayonets. So it's a situation like Little Round Top. Only they're surrounded by Preston's division, Confederate general. And they're forced to surrender. And this is where it's actually James Garfield who Rosecrans asks him how things are going. And Garfield says Thomas is standing like a rock. Take that Prudential Insurance. Isn't yeah. that their name? Like Iraq? No, Chevy Trucks? That's Chevy Trucks. Is Doesn't <laughs> Prudential like, have Iraq in their thing too? Maybe not. I think it's the Chevy truck. Trucks. Like Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Advertising yeah. lingo. Yeah. Steve. And General Thomas. No disrespect. It would be cool to do a campaign with somebody, like a truck campaign with somebody dressed up like General Thomas driving it. <laughs> it's a very niche uh, target audience you're looking for, but man, they would love it. It's really niche. Um, so Snodgrass Hill, um, where this happened, is actually, and I've said this many times, it's actually my favorite place of any battlefield. It is like my little round top. It's a very powerful place to be. And the last time I was there, I was able to wander. I, we wandered off the beaten path, and we actually went down into an area, and we looked around at the monuments that were around us. And they were all the Confederate monuments, and we realized we were right where Longstreet was throwing his men up towards Thomas and it's covered in trees. I can't imagine running up a hill with the trees and, you know, the darkness would be kind of like, you know, cause it's getting close to dusk when they're doing this too. And just, if somebody's shooting at me from above and I'm having to like, you know, carry my pack and like the gun and all that, it must just have been so chaotic and that really it the battle really hit me when i was um in that area and that's one thing about visiting chickamauga is once you start to understand the battle and you can kind of be where they were to see from you can see from their perspective and it really gives like it's like whoa this was this is bad like but yeah it was like very chaotic and like thank thankful for Thomas for saving the Union Army that day. And um even though it ends up being a quote unquote Confederate victory, you know, they're still holding the city of Chattanooga at this point. Yeah, I think that there's always the um retreating is not an easy thing. It's you know, I think some people who maybe not understand warfare as much think that like retreating is like run away, run away. But like, it's a very strategic uh, operation. And the fact that in this particular case, I mean, part of us, Chattanooga is not far and there's a lot of strategic places and positions to, to, to be had in Chattanooga. And then of course with lookout mountain, there's lots of high ground. Um, but this was a pretty effective retreat um, that I think is ends up, you know, helping a little bit anyway, um, kind of quell the, the, uh, the toll of, of losing the battle with such great numbers. Well, I think they're, you know, Thomas probably knew as well as any of them there that they had to hold the city. They had to hold Chattanooga. They had to keep it. They could not let it fall from their hands. And even if it meant, you know, what is said to be a defeat for them, mm-hmm. as long as they're holding that city and they don't lose it, that that's what, that's what matters. And as long as their whole army doesn't get routed. Mm-hmm away from the city, which, which they, I think came close to happening. Um, but the, the aftermath of the battle is, um, it's nearly just as interesting as the battle itself. Um, 
Like the next day, you have Thomas. He encourages Rosecrans to attack again, but Rosecrans, he doesn't. And in a way, I understand this because Rosecrans is probably, by this point, it's been three days of fighting. He's probably extremely Mm. tired. And got lucky to get out on the third day the way he did. Well, yeah, you're just sitting at your headquarters, and all of a sudden there's a sea of blue coming at you, and you're like, oh, (laughs) that's my army. (laughs) And then a sea of gray. So you're not going to be super eager. I think it would take quite the general to kind of be able to push that aside and realize that maybe you could have an advantage because Bragg does lose a lot in that battle. Yeah, there's... And... Like, there's a few skirmishes, and you have, you know, Bragg has sent people off, like Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, like with the cavalry. They're off doing scouting, trying to figure out what's going on. Forrest is sending Bragg reports back on the 21st saying, ah, I think they're leaving. I think they're retreating from Chattanooga. They actually weren't. It was actually, there was other things going on that made it look like they were retreating, but they weren't. And then Bragg's getting reports that, you know, they're holding in there, and... Bragg doesn't do anything either. Like, there's nothing that happens. And then the next day, I think um, I'm reading Powell's book about the aftermath. Um, the 22nd, Bragg spends it doing, like, kind of administrative stuff and not, you know, kind of pushing forward, um, which is a good thing that he didn't. Um, but he doesn't really do anything. Charles Dana said of the battle that Chickamauga is a fatal name in our history as Bull Run. Our soldiers turned and fled. It was wholesale panic. That's what he sends to Washington. Yeah, I think that this battle, I think, fits in with a lot of uh, other Confederate victories in that, like, they, you know, especially in bigger battles where it appears that it's a big victory because of the number of casualties and the number of troops, but they, they never seem to get that like huge advantage militarily. Like they, they didn't end up with, with ground that was super valuable and they didn't take, you know, like they didn't like the, the, because the retreat ended up in Chattanooga, the Tennessee river was still, uh, was not in Southern hands, you know, like in many of their battles that they won that were big battles in Virginia, they never took Washington. They never had a huge geographic advantage when they would sustain huge, huge losses. And I think as the war goes on, you kind of see like they ended up being, you know, not really wins at all because they just used up resources that they couldn't afford to use without really significantly creating a military advantage. When you look at union victories, you can see that, you know, they're cutting the South in half or they're taking the Mississippi river back or they're pushing, you know, Gettysburg pushing Lee out of uh, the North Um, so I think this is another example of like, yeah, interesting battle, very important battle, but just not quite the military victory where they now control the Tennessee or they're pushing the union army way back up North. It just really wasn't like that. Yeah. And, but I think cause it goes into a siege, that's where there's this Mm -hmm. worry created, especially in Washington. And like you have Lincoln sent to Rosecrans after the battle, like it's and I see this as being typically Lincoln, he's trying to boost morale of this commanding general. And he says to him, be of good cheer, we have unabated confidence in you and in your soldiers and officers. I would say save your army by taking strong positions until Burnside joins you. When I hope you can turn the tide, we shall do our utmost to assist you. Which is really how you should, you know, that's how you should be as a leader. Like he's being optimistic, he's encouraging. Um, but Lincoln is actually very worried, and he goes to Hay that night, um, one of his secretaries, and he says, well, Rosecrans has been whipped. And this, he also says, Rosecrans is confused and stunned, like a duck hit on the head. Yeesh. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's like, oh my god. Like, in Lincoln, like, he sees it, I think, what's happening. And Lincoln sends Burnside a telegram at 2 a.m. telling him to to go help Rosecrans, which I don't think Burnside ever, he ends up doing something else. Um, But this actually leads into another connection that Abraham Lincoln has to this battle. And that's because his brother-in-law has been killed. And his brother-in-law is Benjamin Hardin Helm. Benjamin Hardin Helm is a Confederate general. He's married to Mary's half-sister, Emily. 
Uh, He's wounded on the 20th, and he will die on the 21st. Lincoln and Mary end up going into private mourning for him. And of Mary, Mary's niece said, she knew that a single tear shed for a dead enemy would bring torrents of scorn and bitter abuse on both her husband and herself. And this is why they have to go into private mourning. And around the time the Civil War started, Lincoln did approach Benjamin and say to him, would you fight for the Union Army? I will make you um, paymaster of the army. Like he was offering him what would have been a very lucrative position. But Benjamin chooses to fight for the Confederacy instead. Um, You can actually visit the site where he was wounded at Chickamauga. It's actually, I think, quite close to the visitor center there. Um, But this is, um, I think, a connection to the battle that Lincoln has more than, like, any other battle, I think, like just a relative of his being killed that is fighting for the Confederacy. And we could probably do a whole episode on Emily coming. Emily eventually comes to stay with them. And that causes a lot of controversy because she's got to cross, you know, union lines to get to get there. And then she's staying at the White House and and all that. So this is another connection that he has to this battle. Yeah, just kind of, you know, the interesting dynamics of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you have friendships were divided, families were. Um, you know, what do you do when you lose uh, somebody in your family that you've known on a personal level, whether they were fighting with you or against you? You know, it's got to be definitely confusing emotions. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times especially with news when we look at something afar, it's hard to have, you know, take those person, those personal things into consideration. Yeah. And yeah, it definitely had to be a difficult moment um, for them. And yeah, very tough. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's one of the more, I think, interesting things about the battle of Chickamauga too, is just that connection that, that Lincoln has to this battle in, in many different ways, not just because of the strategic location, of the city, but because he does have, um, you know, his brother-in-law is fighting there on the side of the Confederacy, which um, I think is an important part of his history and his story too, um, to know that about him. Um, So we have the, the union in a strong defensive position in Chattanooga. They're actually in the defenses that the Confederates had put there. Um, But the Confederates, as we know, they left on September the 8th. And um, so, and then Bragg has his troops extended in a line from Lookout Mountain to Missionary Ridge, which is their, Missionary Ridge is their extreme left. And they're going to put Rosecrans and Chattanooga under siege. And this Confederate victory um, is described by Powell as being a quote-unquote barren victory. So there's 16,170 Union casualties 18,454 Confederate casualties. Um, I actually read in Powell's book where it could have been as many as 20,000, they think now. Yeah, I think this is going to get back to the point Boyce made earlier. I mean, they won, but, you know, what they win? Mm-hmm. I mean, a piece of land, not the objective, really, because objectives get Chattanooga back. Never ends up doing that. So, and I think that was a great point, I was, you know, that... Yeah. You know, a battle for just this random land at the casualty rate there just, you know, just shows you it was was a little misguided. Yeah. And then I think, too, you know, Lincoln, you know, obviously he's probably got some emotional connections. He gets that telegram, too. You know, um, he probably kind of overreacted a little bit to that, but um, which is kind of understandable with everything going on. But at the end of the day, it was truly an empty victory mm-hmm. for Bragg. And to be the only, I don't know if you got that part in your notes, uh, but I think you said it's the only battle they win outright. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, it's the so, only time the Army of Tennessee clearly won a battle. And for what? Yeah, and I think this is kind of right at that precipice. You know, of course, any time after Gettysburg, I think you can kind of say that, but where it really started to become clear that this was, you know, going to be in many ways a war of attrition where, you know, I think that it was not long after there where they really would have been, you know, man, if we, we could really have used those 18,000 um, 
troops. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly could have given up whatever it was that we had in northern Georgia um, to maybe try to keep moving and try to try to come up with a better spot. But, um, but yeah, I, I agree. I like that term, uh, empty victory. Yeah, it's it's a good way to describe this 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 battle with like you know total casualties being thirty four thousand six hundred twenty four, but odds are it was probably more than that, and it will be the bloodiest battle in the Western theater of the Civil War. It's saying mm-hmm. something after Shiloh. Um, the and the reason they call it this barren victory or that Powell does is because. The Army of the Tennessee has captured more, or sorry, Army of Tennessee. Army of the Tennessee is the Union mm-hmm. Army. Army of Tennessee has captured more guns, more flags, taken more prisoners. They've re- they've routed a third of the federal army so completely they can't reform the next day. But as you said, Jeremy, it's at this high cost, mm-hmm. extremely high cost. Um. And the most important factor in why it's called a barren victory or a hollow one, the Army of the Cumberland, so the Union, they are now holding Chattanooga, which was the strategic object of Bragg's campaign against them. So he's which, I mean, you know, in many ways, that, that almost makes it a Union victory. Like if exactly. They, if, the, if the point of the battle was to take Chattanooga and you don't take Chattanooga, you didn't really win. I mean, you're, you you hold the field, but you don't hold Chattanooga. So no, no, he's brags up on Lookout Mountain, you know, staring down at Chattanooga, probably shaking his fist at it every day, saying, "I'm going to get you," and you know, uh, foreshadowing. He never does. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, Rosecrans has suffered what would be like militarily a tactical defeat. He's Powell sums it up saying he succeeded at the operational art of war because he captured and retained control at Chattanooga, but it's going to be a tense couple of months. And even though the November 1864 election is well over, it's over a year away at this point, this siege and this, uh, you know, this quote unquote loss for the Union Army is not boding well for that because things with the election are starting to kick up and Lincoln needs a victory and he absolutely cannot lose Chattanooga at all. And that's where we're going to leave you with Chattanooga under siege. It's now like Longster um, Bragg has Chattanooga under siege and we will pick this back up again in November with the battles for Chattanooga and a bit of foreshadowing by this point, the Union Army will have a new commander, and it's somebody that I'm sure all of you rail splitters are very familiar with. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Mary. That was an excellent summary of the Battle of Chattanooga. I like the foreshadowing there. Um, um, may have been a minor spoiler and when we did part one of this episode, but hopefully you'll listen to that. Um, so yeah, that'll be, uh, that'll be fun when we get to that, uh, coming down the pike here. Um, so that was the battle of Chickamauga, um, which is very fascinating. I think, um, because it's so unique. Um, and I think that, uh, Mary and your research that really came out and I liked it and enjoyed it and felt like I learned a lot. So thank you once again for all the research and Nick for your commentary as well. Uh, we are going to move on to our two weekly features that we wrap up each show with. The first, of course, being of the people by the people, where we bring in a social media post or news article or something that uh, we thought was pretty cool that was submitted by anybody really in the world. So, Nick or Mary, did you have an of the people by the people you wanted to start with? I do. So uh, my of the people by the people goes out to um, he's a very active member on our Facebook group over at the Real Splitter page. Uh, Tom Pete, he and his son have been going on a Civil War road trip, and they have been posting pictures in our group. And Tom, thank you so much. It's been wonderful seeing those pictures. Um, you know, just seeing the different battlefields you are going to and taking in that history. So thank you so much for that. Yes, I would concur. I uh, I kind of enjoy shifting gears from being a Civil War fan to being an enthusiast to being now a parent. Um, so I kind of look at that and just get some ideas and think it's super cool to see 
Tom and, and, and just anybody parenting like that and kind of passing that down to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Super cool to see. No, I agree. Yeah, jealous. Wish I was on the tour. I know. <laughs> um, you up, boys? You want me to go? I can go. Um, I uh, just happened to come across this this evening. The, of course, there's. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday evening, Tuesday the 23rd. Um, and they just, this afternoon, of course, in the United States, have uh, come out saying that there is going to be a formal impeachment hearing of the current president. Um, and Aaron Schaff, who is a photographer with the New York Times, uh, put on Instagram a photo of Nancy Pelosi walking back to her office after um, news broke that uh, what what she had planned to lead in the formal impeachment inquiry. Uh, but the photo is very cool because she's got a very, um, you know, it's a serious historic moment. She's got, and you can kind of see it in her face, but she's walking right in front of a statue of Abraham Lincoln, uh, which I think is um, very, very cool. Um, and uh, Aaron Schaff kind of points out that uh, House Speaker walks to her office with the statue of President Abraham Lincoln behind her. So, um, and it's actually a, uh, it's, well, it's actually a bust of Abraham Lincoln. Um, pre-presidential, he does not have a beard, and it's one I've never really seen before. So um, I'll be interested to see um, Oh, cool. maybe a little bit more about that. Yeah, I don't know if you can say that well or not. So, yeah, anyway, so that was a photographer from the New York Times, Aaron Schaff. Uh, might actually be a decent Instagram follower. I was just kind of looking looking for, I honestly, I was looking for uh, impeachment connections to Lincoln just to see if that could have been an interesting little inroad to and of the people by the people, and uh, I came to that one. So it was a very cool photo. Yeah, some big news in uh, America today. Was he the fourth one to, who'll be undergoing? Uh Third, right? Yeah, third. Andrew Johnson. Yeah, fourth, fourth, yeah. fourth. No, Richard Nixon wasn't third. Andrew Johnson was. Richard Nixon resigned yeah. under threat of impeachment. Uh, Bill, Clinton. Bill Clinton was, and then he'll be. Yeah. So technically, the third, although Nixon was on his way to to be impeached. Although maybe uh, this, this might be a good timing for a Johnson impeachment episode. Um, down I, I had the thought too to kind of draw some connections there. Yeah. So, um, my for the people by the people goes to this is a little dated about 10 days ago i guess uh there was some good banter started by mary mary came across a civil war magazine brag versus forest um and that led to david ivy chiming in um using some of the good old wrestling all the wrestling (laughs) yeah asking what type of fight it would be which led to quite the thread um so it kind of started what if those two were to have a wrestling match and of course David Ivey, being the brilliant person he is, realized this would be heel versus heel. In the wrestling world, that is bad guy versus bad guy, uh, which is not a money-paying event. So you probably wouldn't hold this at the top of the card. But um, he had Forrest winning, which I agree with without a deal, uh, without a doubt. Forrest is more of that kind of, you know, conniving, really evil bad wrestler, where Bragg's kind of that little whiny brat bad guy yeah. kind of like honky tonk man uh where you just want to see him get his ass kicked um and then that led to a lot of banter about some different stuff and you know eventually we had Forrest taking on uh, sherman. I think you, yeah you wanted him to take on sherman um and then i said grant would probably have to come in and save the day um there so but then david ivy made sure to remind all of us who the world heavyweight champion would have been at that time and of course that would be the great Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. No, it was a fun discussion. It was a great thread. I enjoyed it, uh, Dave. Um, So, yeah. Um, I I have a vision. WrestleMania. We might have to do the Civil War WrestleMania card uh, next summer when it's coming. That would be so so much fun, even though I don't know a thing about wrestling. (laughs) Me neither. All right. And our... This week in Lincoln, where we find Lincoln popping up in somewhere other than a history book, Nick, I believe, has our This Week in Lincoln this week. Yes, I was uh, hanging out with, uh, we were at uh, an event, and I came across the local community college, Rock Valley College. Their media director is a guy by the name of Jerry Labai, uh, and his wife has an Instagram uh, account, and she was talking 
got talking about the rail splitter, and she said, oh, I did a screen print with my kids. Um, so she did an Abraham Lincoln screen print, which is pretty cool, kind of some neon green. Um, her Instagram follows a great follow, see it, make it. Uh, and, yeah, so basically she did a Lincoln screen print using some Mod Podge, whatever the hell that is. It's an art uh, thing. Yeah, so pretty cool. I'll have to retweet this out. And, yes, so go check it out. Always good cool. to see awesome. our projects revolving around Lincoln. I agree. I agree 100%. So uh, we hope you enjoyed our two-part coverage of the Battle of Chickamauga. So if you have any comments or anything, jump on the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. We're at RailsplitterPod, or you can just search for the Railsplitter Podcast on Facebook and join our group. There's quite a lot of uh, Lincoln content coming at you through that. Uh, so we'd love to see you online. Uh, Mary, Nick, any parting thoughts before we sign off for this week? Um, I just want to quickly um, say what my sources were. Um, Cause I know some of our listeners wanted mm-hmm. to know stuff like that. Um, and I'm going to post about it in the Facebook group too. Um, just so it's in writing as well. So I use David A. Powell's the Chickamauga campaign. I unfortunately don't have the first book in that. Um, so I used the last two books in the trilogy for my research. Um, and I used battlefields.org as well, um, which is an excellent resource for maps. And I used William Lee White's Bushwhacking on a Grand Scale, which is the Battle of Chickamauga, September 18th to 20th. It's in the Emerging Civil War series. Any of those books are excellent resources to have. And they actually also serve, some of them do serve as battlefield guides so you can take them with you and they have a tour built into them and it gives you the gps coordinates they're an excellent resource i second the battlefields.org that's what i was looking off of a lot of time you were talking so great website to get some good information on the battles good maps too all right uh so thank you to those uh sources uh and um Hopefully, yeah, if you want to check those out, those would be very helpful. Uh, so for Rail Splitter Mary and Rail Splitter Nick, I am Rail Splitter Jeremy signing off and asking you to please continue to walk the world with Miles Toward None and Charity for All. We'll see you next week.